And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic When you think of the worst seasons in Ferrari's storied F1 history, 1992 has to be up there, or should that be down there as one of the contenders? Ferrari went into a brave new era with another management overhaul, a new president at the very top, and a refreshed driver lineup following the sacking of Alain Prost at the end of 1991. But if going winless and splitting with your star driver in 91 was meant to be where Ferrari bottomed out, it turns out it had much further to fall. So to help me, Glenn Freeman, look into what went so wrong for Ferrari in 1992, I'm Andrew Vandenberg, and I'm delighted to welcome back F1 journalist and author David Tremaine to the show. David, thanks for joining us again. You can have first go at the opening question. When you think back to Ferrari's dreadful 1992 season, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, actually, the first thing that comes to mind is how sexy the car looked, because I really like those jet fighter intakes. Obviously, you have to look back to kind of 91 to see why 92 was such a disaster. Road car guys were running the team, and it showed. You know, they just, I don't think they had any real experience of um, what a racing team needed. And Pierre Guido Castelli was overall in charge of the tech side as well. So the whole thing was just ruddiness. And then, of course, Alan called the car a truck, I think, in Suzuka, which I thought was quite complimentary, really, because it was more like a tank. <laughs> but the stupid thing they did was to get rid of him. And that was just such a disaster because you think, you know, if, if Ayrton Senna is a McLaren, then you want to be Ferrari having Alain Prost. So why on earth would you get rid of him just because he was rude about a car that was really pretty poor? So that was the kind of background to it. But the one sensible thing that was happening was Montezemolo coming back. Of course, he was one of the architects, along with Mickey Lauder of um, Ferrari's resurgence in the mid-70s. So in that sense, it all looked a little bit promising. And when they announced the car, it looked dead sexy. And everyone was thinking, whoa, OK, who needs Alan Prost? We can go ahead. But in the real world, of course, you think Alan Prost can't make Ferrari work. Then who can? Yeah, a good a good flashback there to our first ever episode. We did a two-parter on uh, on Ferrari sacking Prost. And we'll, uh, we'll get into Alan's thoughts in 92 later in the show, actually, because he did an interview in the middle of the year where he talked about Ferrari a little bit. Andy, always good to have you back with us as well. What stands out for you about Ferrari's terrible 92 season? Yeah, always good to be back. This was a... F- Fantastic era to be a Formula One fan. I think, obviously, we call the show Bring Back V10s and it looks uh, through this period, but it was a time of almost unprecedented um, difference across the grid with V8s, V10s, V12s, the odd W16, aero philosophies that range wildly, mechanical philosophies that were completely different, nascent technology being involved. And I remember when Ferrari launched that car, I thought it looked absolutely brilliant. And that, to me, was 
how I wanted Formula One cars to look. I think I'd have been about 17 at the time. And I, on a on our colleague Tim's Motormouth podcast, I revealed the one thing I'm bad at is drawing. But I was so inspired by that car. I actually bought some proper paper and I sat down and I drew that car. I think it was from an image that was in Autosport from Barcelona testing. And I spent bloody ages making it look good for somebody who's like basically two, got two left hands when it comes to drawing. That's how inspired I was by that car. So to turn out to be, I mean, like you say, the, the 91 car was a tank. What the 92 car was, I have no idea. You know, a, a garbage lorry or whatever. Um, very disappointing. But the look of that car when I first saw it being released is instantly what I think of when we come back to that period in time. Yeah, and that was the same for a lot of our audience as well. So let's hear some uh, memories from our audience. There were so many replies to this one. So apologies if we miss you out. Thank you to everyone who who got involved. Let's start then with the people who commented on the looks. Uh, We had it from uh, C. Brown M Sport, uh, Raina Brearley, Shrimp Fandangle, John Ayres, Rich T and Mr. Dawson said the car always looked like it was going 30 miles per hour faster than the opposition, even if it definitely wasn't. Christopher De Harder says uh, his memory is disappointment that Ferraris blame anything but the engine culture. Couldn't see that one of the largest flaws with the car was in fact the engine. And Adam said the double floor concept took most of the blame, but the engine was terrible. Had a few shout outs for Ivan Capelli being perched on the barriers in Monaco. Thanks to Mark Martin, Stephen Wood, Aidan Dulori, uh, Yash and Rene Nyssen for that. Unfortunately for Ivan, uh, lots of you also recall him crashing out on the start line in Mexico, including IndyCart, Tico, Philip Eitzinger and Maltese Falcon. We're into the second half of Series 9 now, so time is running out to get your questions in for the end of the series. We've received more questions than ever before to our email address, so get yours over to bringbackv10s at the-race.com before it's too late. We will, of course, be taking questions from the Race Members Club for several post-series episodes as well. So if you'd like better odds at your question making the cut, then check out the link in the description of this episode to sign up. And if you do, you'll also get every new episode early and ad-free, and you'll get access to all kinds of bonus content from Bring Back V10s and the race, including our members-only series of mini-episodes after Series 9, where we'll look back over a classic season, one race at a time. Make sure you check out our merch over at shop.the-race.com. And if you've not yet joined us and over 2,000 other fans of the show in our community on Twitter slash X, then there's a link to that in the description too, and we'd love to have you come along. But now, let's get on with Ferrari's miserable 1992. As we've already mentioned, the big news at Ferrari over the winter of 91-92 was the return of Luca di Montezemolo, who'd overseen Ferrari glory in the 1970s and was returning as president after successfully running Italy's hosting of the Football World Cup in 1990. Montezemolo stayed out of the limelight all winter, finally speaking publicly for the first time at the launch of the 1992 car. He was very realistic in that address, saying Ferrari was looking for a revival and had a lot of ground to make up to the opposition, but he talked up having an eye to the future by hiring young engineers whose enthusiasm and abilities will make a notable contribution. As part of the new broom he was sweeping through Ferrari, he also changed the naming convention of the cars. So instead of this being the 644, to the public at least, which was the code name, it was launched as the F92A. 
David, you, you hinted at this in your answer at the beginning, but what did you think of the decision to put Montezemolo in charge? We know it paid off in the end, but did it seem like a smart move at the time? Yeah, definitely. I mean, suddenly you had a guy who understood racing inside out, back in charge, which was exactly what you needed. You, you know, how on earth could you run Ferrari with people at the race team with just guys who knew from the road cars? You just don't have that same kind of mindset. Um, I have always had a lot of time for Luca. He's always been one of those patrician kind of Italians, very elegant, um, got a lot of charisma. I think he knew what he was doing. He understood well what was needed and it started to sort of clear up the mess. But I think when he went in there, he, he must have realised that it was an awful lot worse than he thought it was from the outside. But that was a, a sensible move. I can't think of anyone else at the time that would have been better to go in there. Yeah, we'll get to uh, his thoughts later on uh, what he made of Ferrari when he got there. He did eventually reveal what he's thinking at the beginning. But one of his first moves was to bring in his former driver, Nicky Lauda, as an advisor. Lauda said he accepted the role because of the whole new structure at Ferrari and he backed Montezemolo to lead Ferrari back to success. He also said the most significant part of his role initially would be to work with the team during pre-season testing to observe how things are developed and prevent them from going in the wrong direction. And he said that would require intensive contact with the engineers and the drivers. Lauda said Ferrari was starting from scratch again but he still felt winning a race or two was a possible target for 1992 with the aim of creating a base for a title push in 93. Andy knowing what we know now about how bad this car was those aims obviously looked laughable but given where Ferrari had been in 91 were those actually more realistic goals than they appear to us today? Yeah, I mean, you're quite right. In hindsight, it does absolutely uh, appear to be laughable. But if you look at that relationship dynamic, when De, De Montezemolo went into Ferrari in 73, it was an absolute shambles. The car was so bad. In fact, they withdrew from a couple of the races there. But when Lauda arrived in 74, they'd already got themselves back to being one of the most competitive outfits on the grid and, and had the best package for the next uh, three seasons with Lauda, you know, uh, only missing out on three titles because of what happened to him at, at the Nürburgring. So... There's no reason for him to suspect that a team that was challenging for the title in 90 couldn't, with a bit of uh, guidance and uh, restructuring, suddenly find its winning ways again. I don't think, looking at the ingredients on paper, at least at a superficial level, obviously we would find out that beneath the surface there was a hell of a lot worse going on, that they couldn't, you know, with a, with a good concept and a following wind and uh, with the drivers they had, nick a win or two and then be on the path to glory. Now, obviously it transpired they were a million miles off of that. Um, but I think before the season started, they were reasonable aims, I think. Yeah, I mean, you think occasionally that 91 car led the odd race here and there. It wasn't a, wasn't a disaster. It just wasn't as good as what came before it. But let's talk about the car that followed that 91 car. This was a memorable launch that uh, Montezemolo and Lauda were speaking at. The F92A uh, turned heads. Not only was it Ferrari's first attempt at a car with a raised nose, but more notably, this was the twin floor Ferrari, which had a radical gap between the bottom of the side pod and the car's floor, running all the way along the back half of the car. The idea was the brainchild of designer Jean-Claude Migio, who had come up with the high-nosed Tyrrell 019 in 1990. Speaking about the Ferrari at the time, Migio said the idea was not the result of a sudden brainwave, it is the result of a long development and experience in the wind tunnel. 
I got to speak to Mijo last year for an exclusive chat that we released to the Race Members Club. And in that, he explained to me his thinking behind the twin floor was to open a channel to blow air directly into the diffuser at the back of the car and to prevent the airflow slowing down before it entered the floor. Now, David, this was a big, or seemed like a big innovation at the time. What was your reaction when you first saw it? I think everyone was fascinated, to be honest, because, of course, it was something nobody had appeared to have tried before. And it kind of fitted in with the the general tenor of Ferrari at that time, that we've got a sexy new car, and look, here's a clever thing underneath it. Um, if you remember, I think the Ferrari came out before the active Williams, but um, obviously Ferrari had been influenced by what aerodynamics had done for the FW14. And this was their attempt to emulate an aerodynamic step forward. So we all looked at it and thought, great, you know, these are the days. This is what we could do with this here, isn't it? Somebody trying something radical. <laughs> and somebody trying it back then was, everyone was quite excited and couldn't wait to see what would happen. Also at the launch, Steve Nichols, who had led the chassis project, said it had not been easy to incorporate Migio's ideas. And he said the biggest challenge was getting the exhausts right. But he also said something that was potentially telling when he said the Ferrari design team lost some time last year because of the effort that went into doing a new car for mid-season in 1991. We talked about that back in our very first episode of Bring Back V10s and how in Ferrari's panic to, uh, after a difficult start to 91, so much effort went into the 643 that made its debut in the middle of the year. Alacy addressed this later in the season, saying what Ferrari did in 1991 was a mistake because they pulled the trigger on doing another car too soon and because they didn't understand what was wrong with the original 91 car, the new one didn't fix the problems anyway. Andy, given how bad the 92 car turned out to be, was there perhaps an element of Ferrari paying for its short-term thinking early in 91? I think there's definitely some element of that, but I think it was much more indicative of a, a wider melee. If you if you look back over the preceding 10 years, I think you'd had Postlethwaite, Brunner, Barnard, Postlethwaite, now Nichols, and all these uh, instability at the top. This is less than four years since uh, old man Ferrari had died, just over three. Um, and it, there'd been an enormous amount of turmoil there. And I think this is more of a product of that. Uh, and then failing to really understand that in this era, a V10 engine format was the way to go. I think we'd seen, even though Honda decided to go to V12 for marketing reasons or whatever, but that was the, the format. They weren't really looking at that. They were instead pushing everything into the, the chassis side of things. And so there was an element, I think, where they were always doomed to a bit of failure uh, until they fully address the problem, which the Montezemolo probably had half a, a handle on by now, but nowhere near enough time and influence to have fully addressed it. So while they probably did expend far too many resources in midway through 91 um, with a flawed concept of pushing through that new car anyway, I think what went wrong here was symptomatic of a much deeper problem at Ferrari, not just what they did in the previous year. I think it's also worth perhaps saying that when old man Ferrari died in August 88, the general feeling was that Luca would have gone back then. And he was so entrenched in Italia 90 that that was why he didn't go back. And you're right, Andrew, it was a complete kind of mishmash turmoil, wasn't it? I mean, maybe Barnard wouldn't have left if Luca had been in charge. And maybe it, it could all have been much stronger. But it was very reactive, wasn't it? They had a great 1990. 
um, and Alan was in, in the championship fight almost to the end. And then suddenly it all went wrong in 91 in the most catastrophic way. They kept reacting, didn't they, and overreacting and jumping in the wrong directions all the time. Yeah, exactly. It, it was clear that they, they didn't really understand where they were failing. So they were just starting from one direction to the next, whereas there was nothing really fundamentally wrong in 90 with a, with a, with a bit of better luck in some directions. And obviously, where, where, what happened at Suzuka, it could easily have gone the other way. And would they have reacted that way in 91 that, if that had been the case? Almost certainly not. It also makes you wonder, doesn't it, in 91 how much uh, the engine was a problem. Somebody touched on it earlier on in your responses, Glenn. Uh, the general feeling was that the Ferrari was a 100 brake down on both the Honda V12 and the Renault V10, which, as we all know, is a huge amount. So if you've got a millstone like that, in the back of the car anyway that's not going to help and plus the 92a had a i think it had a longitudinal gearbox to begin with didn't it in and a 36 speed so the weight distribution wasn't um, optimal either so you had those two things plus something uh, a new breakthrough that didn't appear to work i mean uh, uh, i was a jean liked the car he loved it he thought it was really cool but it just wasn't a very good car but i think when capelli and Narini first tested it at Fiorano, they immediately sort of signaled that, hang on, this isn't a great piece of kit. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Right, let's get uh, into that uh, a lacy feedback that David just mentioned there. Ferrari didn't give much away in testing. Uh, Alacy said publicly that the F92A was very sensitive to setup changes, but he said it was excellent in high-speed corners and spectacular to drive. So that backs up what David recalled just a moment ago. As we mentioned, though, new teammate Ivan Capelli was less impressed. He told Motorsport Magazine in 2020 
that when he got his first go in the car at the end of a test where he'd been driving the 91 car, he said he could feel straight away that the 92 car didn't feel right. He said it was a shock, and in the debrief, he tried to be constructive and suggest that the suspension and aero needed some work. But he said when it was Alacy's turn to feedback, Alacy said the car was fantastic and that he could win races and challenge for the championship. Capelli said he pointed out they were going 1.5 seconds slower than the Williamses, but the team told him he didn't understand and they went with Alacy's feedback instead. Andy, is that just a case of a team listening to the driver that's telling them what they want to hear? Yeah, 100% it is. And of course, John Lacey came from the Ronnie Peterson School of Feedback, which was just, you know, try a bit harder, push, break a bit later, go a bit faster and everything will be fine. When you've got a guy who's been working with Adrian Newey, pushing forward what was to become the defining way of designing race cars with the uh, the way the diffuser works, he had a pretty good idea how contemporary F1 cars should handle. Right? He'd been at least 100 horsepower down with the Judd v- V8s that he was there, but able to you know put it up uh, a really strong fight when the uh, aero allowed. I think he actually deserved to be listened to. And, and when he's talking about the suspension and aero not being right, he's probably right. Um, but yeah, they, they definitely didn't want to be hearing that. Uh, and maybe it, there was probably too far down the line for them to do anything about it. But it, the sensible thing would be to have listened to Capelli then. <laughs> That's interesting because um, I knew we were going to talk a little bit later about Ivan being sacked, but now might be a good point I, uh, to talk about him more. I, I had a long conversation with him once about it all, and he said exactly the same kind of things, that he didn't feel right to begin with. He struggled with it. And he said all the people that, well, first of all, he was the first Italian since Michele, so there was a huge amount of pressure on him. Um, of expectation, but also of media want. So the media thought, good, we've got a guy who speaks our language. We can get into him. We'll make him tell us all the things we want, the inside stuff. And of course, he was trying not to do that. And he said he thought um, that he trusted the wrong people. So he would suggest these things. And they go, yeah, yeah, Mike, yeah, big good idea. Yep, yep, yep. And then he gets to the races after testing and nothing was done. They, he'd been completely ignored because, again, it was what Jean suggested and everything was okay. And he actually got his quote here when he said, uh, I realised they were just working for themselves. Um, and then how he put it was that he felt he was thinking too much for Ferrari and should have just worked for himself in order to survive. And I think it was an easy thing in the end, just to let him go. I mean, he had a terrible year, didn't he? A couple of fifths and a ninth and a tenth, I think, and ten retirements. But even when the car wasn't breaking down, he was never fast. He was he, he just never, ever clicked. He very rarely out-qualified Jean. I think it was once or twice, if that. But he was always normally half to one and a bit tenths slower. I mean, maybe... Um, the one time I think Jean really looked like he was on it um, in a car that was suitable was in Spain, wasn't it, when it was wet. And he went from like seventh on the grid to running alongside Petrosi going into the first corner and was spectacular, to be fair. Um, fell back a bit, spun, had a pit stop for new tyres and then came back through to give Ayrton a hard time until Ayrton stopped past Gerhardt, which was quite impressive. I was right on Michael's tail for a bit 
um, and finished fairly close to him in third place, which was one of his two best performances. But I think if the car could have, you said something earlier on about Alessi saying how spectacular the car was to drive. I think if you could have interviewed the car, it would have said how <laughs> spectacular it was to be driven by John Alessi. Because <laughs> I think John tried, he had that knack of just pushing it as hard as he could. Do you remember there was a, a fantastic um, Alto Hebdo cartoon which depicted the Ferrari as a locomotive with a sort of funnel and everything else, and Jean shoving um, burnables into a furnace. No, and of course, all the, right. the bits of wood, cut bits of wood, were, were lodged between the twin floor. So he was reaching back and throwing them in, and you think that was pretty much it. It was a locomotive, wasn't it? <laughs> we were trying to work out what to call it earlier, weren't we? We'll go with Alto Hebdo. Um, it, what, despite all of that pre season chat, it wasn't long. Before the truth came out, uh, Alessi and Capelli qualified fifth and ninth for the first race in South Africa, both retired with an engine problem caused by the oil pump design. Ferrari then set about emergency testing, which is always a good sign, before the next race in Mexico, uh, running at Mugello and Imola. Meanwhile, Harvey, Harvey Postlethwaite, who had recently returned to Ferrari but not really been involved in the 92 car, was uh, reported in the Italian media to be unimpressed by the F92A. The emergency testing didn't achieve much as Alessi and Capelli qualified 10th and 20th in Mexico, where both of the Ferrari-powered Scuderia Italia Dallara's were ahead of them, 7th and 9th in the, on the grid in the hands of JJ Leto and Pierluigi Martini. Capelli crashed out on the start line, uh, which we mentioned earlier, while Alessi retired from 8th with engine failure. Talking of the engine, uh, which Alessi called no good during this weekend, Ferrari also realised that its front wing design was affecting the airflow to the side pods, which was overheating the engine and costing it power. Alessi wasn't any more positive about the car itself, uh, saying it was still a long way from right, the balance is no good, and that every time Ferrari made a change, it went backwards. He added that the problems are so big it's impossible to explain and said in a way he was glad things were so serious because it will make everyone work to get us past them. And team boss Claudio Lombardi summed it up well saying we have two principal problems, bad handling and a lack of top speed. David, two races in and already we've had a, uh, a big old uh, emergency test session in the middle. Was it clear that Ferrari were in crisis here? Yeah, and they also went to Nardo um, after Mexico um, when at least they they confirmed there that they, they'd got a, I think it was the scavenge system that worked properly. But, yeah, they were. I mean, A, the wonder car clearly didn't work. And B, it was more and more obvious that not just that the engine was unreliable, but that it lacked a lot of grunt. So, yeah, I mean, they were in huge trouble within two races and it never really it got a little bit better in terms of it wasn't always the engine that broke um but yeah i mean they were in huge trouble and such a a, a, a lot of trouble that if you remember nigel was blitzing everyone in the williams although ricardo was doing quite a decent job in it as well and the mclaren mp 478 was a pretty decent piece of kit as well and the Ferrari clearly was not in their class and was not going to get into it. 
Both cars came home lapped and in the points in Brazil, which Lombardi called a performance we should not really be proud of. But then Alessi took that surprise podium in the rain at the Spanish Grand Prix. Uh, it was a chaotic race. Uh, as we mentioned, he jumped from eighth to third at the start. There was some suspicion around that start. Uh, Jean said it was because his rear tyres were on a dry patch of track under a bridge. So it wasn't a jump start. Uh, he also had two spins after collisions with Gerhard Berger and Mika Hakkinen and had even less top speed than usual because his sixth gear wasn't working. But even someone as emotional as Alessi wasn't about to get caught up in any belief that this result was a sign of a Ferrari revival. When he was asked that very question, he said, I can't say that. It's not a good car at the moment. So Andy, was this just a classic case of some Alessi magic in what we could consider were his conditions? Oh, a hundred percent. I thought I'd go back and uh, and watch the highlights of this race just to refresh my memory about it. And I had to replay the start at least three or four times just to check that he hadn't jumped it because it's it's just phenomenal. What do you reckon? He done. I I think in the way they do hundred meter starts now, he would be done for a jump. He anticipates it, but he does not move until that. But I okay. think he he's a it's a pure fluke. Go on, David. But he did do it under the. Um, eyes of Roland Brunzerite and McLaren thought they kept telling Berger, you know, we're pretty sure he jumped the start. And the FIA was adamant that he didn't. So then Roland was yeah, the guy that was in charge of that then and just said, no, as far as I'm concerned, he didn't. So who knows? I think with the technology available now, he probably did, but I definitely will give him the benefit of the doubt. Just, if nothing else, because it looks amazing. The rows <laughs> ahead of him are all just spinning their wheels, and he's like, he's in third gear and flat out by the time they barely got off the line. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, no wonder we um, all loved him so much. Well, it's exactly that. And then the opening couple of laps, in qualify, what were they, 1.8, 1.9 off? And he's staying with, he's keeping the Williams in sight for the first couple of laps on pure balls right the, the car's got no reason to be there it's missing the top gear and then it descends into pure lacy chaos he sort of he, he sort of drives into burger in a really ham-fisted pointless way then he does the bit of a genius move to to put the tires on he can't get by hackenen so he just he, he just clatters into him he, he, it's 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 so poorly judged but he's so frustrated he doesn't care and then he's like only mansell is quicker than him for the rest of that race he is flying around and the wetter that gets the faster it gets senna who amazing the wet bins it effectively under pressure from him uh, and then all in a car that has no right really being in the points let alone in third so it's absolutely classic Alacy the sort of thing I think the last time I was on one of these we were talking about Alacy's um, 89 season that he just why did we only ever see that guy probably 20 times in his whole career of 200 or whatever races it was because when he was like that he was the best guy to watch you know hands all in the wrong places but it, it is total Alacy genius Good and bad. It's brilliant. This episode uh, won't be a full-on race-by-race rundown of how bad Ferrari were, but after not scoring any points in Imola or Monaco, a story broke suggesting Ferrari were trying to get Michael Andretti for 1993. Michael cleared this up when he attended the Canadian Grand Prix that, in 92, saying he could have driven for Ferrari in 92, but he already had a new deal agreed with Newman Haas to stay in IndyCar. And he expanded on this in 2020 on journalist Marshall Pruitt's podcast. Michael said uh, his IndyCar deal had a clause in it 
saying team owner Carl Haas wouldn't block him making a move to F1. Andretti said he signed a three-year contract with Ferrari for 92 onwards, but when he took it back to Haas, Carl said he wouldn't release him. Although uh, Michael acknowledges this was a bad period for Ferrari, he thinks it would have been a better F1 opportunity than the one he ended up taking with McLaren for 1993, as testing was still unlimited in 92, and he thinks Ferrari would have been less political for him than McLaren was. Uh, Andy, uh, we've asked David about the possibility of Andretti at Ferrari when we did our Andretti 93 episode back in Series 6, so you can have it this time. But what do you think of that claim that Ferrari in 92 would have been a better introduction to F1 than McLaren in 93? There, there is one tiny piece of logic in it, and that is that he wouldn't have been up against Senna. So he wouldn't have been beaten around the head pace-wise okay. every weekend. But that is it. The, the politics, way worse. He's in a car that can barely go in a straight line. So he's hardly um, going to be performing very well. Obviously, Mario's last race for them is, is this ro- ridiculously romantic pole position at Monza in 82 and a one-off performance. He's not living up to that. He's, okay. he's not given the family name some uh, fabulous reuniting with the, with the Ferrari brand. I can only see pitfalls here because also he's not moving to Italy, is he? He's still doing the, the, the commute from the States. It's not working out. And if anything, he's probably getting fired even earlier. <laughs> and the TV that they bought in South Africa... I think it was wouldn't have worked in Italy either. So oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but also, you talk about drivers and coulda, woulda, shoulda type stuff. Prost did admit during 1991 that maybe Ron had been right and suggested that he take a year off in 90 and then go back to McLaren in 91. That was how bad things were. That he was even sort of thinking, you know, go away, chill out, forget about the feud with Ed, and then come back and join him again for 91. Maybe I should have done that after him. I think it says a lot about how scarred Michael was by what happened at McLaren, that uh, he, he, he thinks he thinks early 90s turmoil Ferrari would have been less political than what he had to live through. Anyway, back to Ferrari on track. So on that Canadian weekend, uh, Lacey got another podium, although he rightly put this down to reliability because, in Jean's words, the car was not normally good for third place, and he said he drove like a taxi driver to make sure he finished. But the more significant thing that happened this weekend involved Capelli, who had a horrible crash exiting the turn 3-4 chicane. He said at the time the hit was very hard and he was a bit shaken by it, and that he was lucky not to have been hurt. However, there have been theories over the years that he hit his head on the barrier in this crash, and that perhaps he was never the same driver again after that. David, you said you've, t- you've spoken to Ivan more recently about this. Have you ever heard the theory or has he ever spoken about the fact that there might have been a... He didn't say that. All he said was that the throttle never felt right from the start. It was sort of behaving in a, um, um, an unsatisfactory, unpredictable kind of manner. And then on that particular occasion, he said it just jammed and the car went straight on. There was nothing I could do with it. But it was quite a big hit. Um, I think it detuned him for a, a little while after that. But also remember people like um, Nelson and I think it was Thierry Bootson once had a smack on the head and both of them, like Nelson admitted it was a year before he was right, fully right. And you sort of think, yeah, there might be something in that. But I think more for, for Ivan was just the fact that it was such a hornet's nest 
um, where he was. And he couldn't get the car to go as quick as Jean. And it just kind of went downhill, didn't it? Yeah, it never clicked, did it? Uh, you talked about the um, the gearbox earlier, and uh, Ivan was behind. Ivan got, was behind on the spec. I think when Alacy had the transverse gearbox, it was something like eight eight races. Both updated cars were for Jean's disposal at Spa, and Ivan got stuck with the old banger. Yeah, exactly. Now I mentioned earlier that we would hear from Alain Prost uh, later in the year, and uh, he gave those thoughts uh, in an in-depth interview to Nigel Roebuck in Autosport. Alain said it was a bit early to judge how much of a difference the Montezemolo louder regime was making. And while he felt it was probably a step in the right direction, he doubted if two people could force through the big changes needed. He also said, and this is remarkable given he was fired by the team the previous November, that if he was convinced the mentality at Ferrari was changing and he thought they could win races in 93, he would consider going back if he was approached. Andy, can you imagine a world where Prost went back to Ferrari a year after being sacked? Yeah, quite easily, actually. I think his main beef was always with Fiorio. Um, he'd had a good relationship with Lauda uh, when they were teammates at McLaren. Um, De Montezemolo's reputation uh, was such that I think he would have had some faith that he could work with him, um, that his ideas would be taken on board, that he could probably affect some of those changes. And actually, it probably is the smartest driver move. There is a question about this a bit later on that, that Ferrari could have made would be to, to get Prost back and actually listen to him this time. Um, and maybe the, the people were in place who would have wanted to listen to him. Um, so I can, I can quite happily imagine a, a world in where uh, that would have happened. Uh, never in a million years if Fiorio was still there, though. That's the caveat. Yeah, all the other road car guys. I totally agree. Yes. Totally agree. That could have worked, especially with Barnard going back and Harvey and everything else. Yeah, I could see that would work quite well. And Steve was there still. Uh, it's a bit of a dream team when you think about it. It's a real missed opportunity. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think you're both right. Um I, I, do, I do remember when we covered this in at the start of Bring Back V10s, at the very start of the, the whole show, I think there was an element where even Prost was thinking, how typical was it that the guys that fired me got fired about two weeks after I did? And if, if he could have just hung on, he could have been there for the new regime. But let's forget uh, Ferrari signing Prost back for the moment, because the next big rumour to come out of Italy was that they were in fact chasing Ayrton Senna for 1993. This rumbled on through the summer and uh, really has been lost behind the fuss that was made over Senna trying to force his way in at Williams for 93. But Ferrari eventually went on record as confirming Senna as their number one target, saying that they told him he'd need to view 93 as a year of building up ahead of a title challenge in 94. Senna addressed the Ferrari approach later in the year while contemplating a sabbatical after he'd found out Prost had vetoed him going to Williams and he said... If he was only in F1 for the money, he would have accepted Ferrari's offer. He said he still dreamed one day of driving for Ferrari, but going there in 93 would not be good for me or for the team. David, is that a fair assessment from Ayrton? Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's funny because in those days, I was a bit sort of dubious that he would ever go to Ferrari, but actually he was really, as it transpires, he was really quite keen to have gone there. He was certainly smart enough because they talked in 91 um, and then again in 92 and he was certainly smart enough to be looking in the right direction, which was Williams. Um, there was no way he would have gone to Ferrari then because it was so disorganised and even with Luca there and 
<clears throat> you know, you could see the 92A was a piece of junk in comparison with what he was driving then. Um, I mean, it's very interesting, like at Spa, Nigel was on pole two seconds quicker than Ayrton, and another two seconds behind was a Lacey in the revised Ferrari. So it was four seconds off the Williams. So, you know, there's no way he'd have gone there. And that's, I, I totally understand that quote. If I was in it for the money only, yeah, I'd have gone there. But what's really interesting as well is that he kept a very good relationship with Steve Nichols. And they used to talk at races and away from races quite a lot. Um, they kept each other up to speed and Steve would undoubtedly be, have been telling him what was happening at Ferrari. So it wouldn't just be that he was looking across the paddock and thinking, well, that thing doesn't look very good and it's not great when I follow it on the track. He would have known what was happening within Ferrari then. So it wasn't just an emotional decision not to go there as a typical Ayrton, and look at everything, consider all the fact. No, not the right time. You need to wait. Had he lived, then it's quite possible that Ayrton could have been the guy Ferrari went for. And then imagine if Ayrton had had access to the Ferraris that Michael had from like 97 onwards. Opens up a whole new sort of vista, doesn't it? Yeah, I always love that what if of uh, people when people say, if Senna had stuck around, would he have been the one Ferrari bet the farm on instead of Michael? Right, uh, with Senna out of the picture then, Ferrari went off to Gerhard Berger instead, which confirmed that Capelli's time with the team would only be for a single season. Berger said he had got tired of waiting to see what else was happening in the driver market, so he made his move first, and he felt he was the right person for Ferrari. He praised what he felt was a new Ferrari under Montezemolo and said he was impressed with how quickly they got on with things during negotiations. Jean Lacy wasn't too pleased when he found out about this because he learned of the Berger signing through the media, where it was being reported that Berger was coming back to Ferrari with number one status. Alessi was out testing when he heard about it, and he delayed the start of his running, I think it was at Estoril, to make an angry phone call to Lauda, accusing Ferrari of disrespect. It was quickly cleared up by Montezemolo calling him back, telling him he had it all wrong, and Ferrari even gave Jean an F92A to keep as a gift. Brilliant gift. Andy, once Ferrari knew they couldn't get Senna, was Berger a good second choice? Well, as we were talking about in the previous answer, I love these uh, sort of bits and pieces and of moving the, the figures around on the board at that time. And we were a really interesting period then, where the end of one era, so PK was already a spent force, Mansell and Prost were coming towards the end of their competitive careers, leaving really Senna as the only established number one driver there so on the face of it looking at the options established options there burger makes a lot of sense but of course it transpired that basically you get you end up with a burger lacy lineup of two number twos both of whom can turn it on occasionally but neither of whom are good enough to ever take you to a championship or to put you into a position where you really need to be maybe pre-ml 89 burger was but i don't think we ever really got that guy again um so if you like to indulge in a bit of fantasy here, the op- there were other really interesting options there. You've got the beginnings of seeing Michael Schumacher as an emerging talent. You've got a Mika Hakkinen there that's doing some really interesting things at a Lotus, but they're not established. So they are a bit of a punt. They're, they're, they're basically a, a like a Capelli type signing. You know, had a few flashes of, of potential without really um, establishing themselves. 
it's a much more interesting 93-94 season if a Hakkinen or especially if a Schumacher goes there then rather than carrying on in the trajectory in which their careers were going but unfortunately that's not what we got we got um, Alessi and Berger and they were much for muchness and occasionally racked up the odd win you know the thing about Gerhard's Ferrari deal and I remember how pleased he was with himself because he timed it perfectly because although it wasn't announced until after Hungary He'd done the deal before, and I, I, I don't know why the figure of ten million sticks in my head. Whether he told us that or that was just the feeling at the time, but I think that's what he did. And he was the last one at that moment to get the big wedge, because of course Ayrton then in Hungary offered to drive the Williams for free, um, thereby screwing Ed Mansell and everyone else, and just dropping the. The thing out of it, Gerhard was laughing his head off that weekend because he was rolling in his new newfound wealth, returning to Ferrari. Yeah, when you've got the main player in the market uh, offering to do it for nothing, it, it really does reduce the market value of everyone else, doesn't it? I mean, Gerhard thought that was hysterically funny. I don't, I don't know whether Ed had ticked him off or what, but, um, you know, they were close, so he might have. But Gerhard's time, it was absolutely immaculate. No wonder he praised Ferrari for their uh, the way they behaved in negotiations if they gave him £10 million. I think uh... At the time, I seem to remember that was a kind of, whoa, OK, wow, well done kind of thing. Yeah, I saw uh, the, the, the amount that was rumoured to Senna was £13 million. So Ferrari thought, yeah, we'll, not, we'll knock a bit off that for Gerhard. But uh, someone else came back to Ferrari that summer, and that was John Barnard, who'd left at the end of 1989 to join Benetton. This was part of a big shake-up at Ferrari, inevitably, uh, where Barnard would once again set up a UK technical base that would work on the longer-term plan for the 1994 car, and Harvey Postlethwaite would lead the 93 project from Maranello while also heading up the race team. Barnard said that Montezemolo got he and Postlethwaite to go into a room together to make sure they'd be able to work together better than they did the last time they were both at Ferrari. And they agreed they wanted to make it work, helped by the fact that Barnard knew he couldn't control Maranello from the UK, so he might as well let someone else do it. Barnard declared Ferrari to be unfinished business, saying that had he not been so enticed by the prospect of joining Benetton, he might not have left first time around. But he was annoyed at Ferrari before he even signed this deal, at a meeting in a hotel in London, uh, I think it's around the time of the British Grand Prix, he attended under a fake name of Mr. Jones, so it wouldn't leak out, and he was furious when the talks were reported in the Times two days later. Barnard sent an angry fax to Louder in all capital letters about this, and he added in his book, The Perfect Car, that he felt like he was stepping straight back into the Ferrari political mire. David, when you heard... Barnard was going back to Ferrari. What did you think? Were you confident it could work second time around? Not awfully, no. Because, <laughs> again, I mean, I understand entirely why John wanted to do it that way. I've got a, a huge amount of respect for John and everything he's achieved. And I admired his wish to do things his own way. But it didn't really work the first time. And... It could only have been an interim thing, surely, to indulge somebody to that extent. So I think we all wondered how long it would last before it fell apart. 
it was undoubtedly a good idea to get John um, to work there. Uh, I think everyone would agree, and John himself would admit be the first one. As a perfectionist, he could be quite difficult to work for. Um, so with an arm's length kind of relationship, I think the Harvey thing ought to have helped that in many ways, because at least those two guys were very clever, very intelligent people who could sit down and talk to each other without letting the politics get in the way. But there would always be the polemics in the background at Ferrari. And I, I know that it wasn't hugely popular within the team that somebody would be indulged to that extent. So it was always going to be a little bit difficult, I think. You don't know with a good car, but would John be there long enough to get the best out of it? I think that was a general feeling. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Ahead of Ferrari's home race in Italy, Montezemolo gave a rare in-depth interview in English, which was to Alan Henry, and it ran in Autosport magazine. Montezemolo described the challenge he'd taken on at Ferrari as very complicated and said that when he arrived, he realised the racing department was far worse than I expected. So we hinted at that earlier, didn't we? He said Ferrari had become an inflexible monolith of a company, so he'd set about dividing it into smaller, more agile departments. He said he wanted less bureaucracy in the racing department, and he believed that bringing Barnard back and setting up a UK technical base again could help with that. He addressed the concerns uh, that we raised there about Barnard working from the UK because it hadn't worked first time around. But Montezemolo said he thought it was a super idea that was managed in a bad way first time around because of Enzo Ferrari's declining health and eventual death. Uh, interestingly, Barnard said in his book, though, that when he initially started talking to Ferrari about coming back, Montezemolo told him he couldn't work from the UK again because he didn't think it would work. So obviously he relented but had his doubts. Uh, in public, though, Montezemolo said this time around, Ferrari wanted to take advantage of F1's Silicon Valley in the UK alongside the huge potential of Maranello. He also said he had full power inside Ferrari and he wanted people to follow his ideas, adding that if they didn't, then there are many possibilities available to them outside of Ferrari. Andy, does what Montezemolo was saying there at least sound like a man who was getting his head around why Ferrari had lost its way? Yeah, I think not only does it sound like it, uh, he was. Whether the Barnard move was completely the correct one, the problems he's identifying there were right. And the next move he made, of course, was to bring Jean Todd in um, towards the end of 93. And that set in motion the things that ultimately ended with Ferrari having its most successful period in its history. I think, and my previous answer was talking about them probably not having a strong enough driver lineup, but I think with a uh, an acknowledged superstar in this world where we've managed to convince either Prost or Senna to drive for Ferrari. Let's scrap <laughs> 93, that's a lost cause. The 94 car wasn't bad, certainly better than the, the solitary win it picked up. And the 95 car, as we know from when Schumacher tested it, was way better than the results that those guys got out of it. And I think had they 
been investing as much in um, developing a V10 engine instead of plowing on with a beautiful sounding but too heavy and underpowered V12, then we may well have seen Ferrari taken a much uh, larger step forward more quickly because of what uh, De Montezemolo was doing. So I think he's absolutely right. The, but the size and the, the depth of the challenge just took an enormous amount of time for him to wade through. But what he's trying to do there, what he's trying to put into place, is the right thing. So, yeah, it, you know, he is a he's a very smart and calculating guy, but I don't think anyone appreciated quite how far behind the times Ferrari were at, uh, back then. I think it was also quite clever that it was a shrewd way of getting up to speed very quickly with what the British engineering side of things was doing. But also, I think that was Nicky's idea principally, wasn't it, to get Barnard back? And having Nicky alongside him was a very shrewd move by um, Luca as well. Yeah, obviously, they'd had a, a fabulous relationship at, at McLaren and Again, pushing forward the development there with those carbon fibre tubs and all of that stuff. So, yeah, it, the pieces are aligning, aren't they? They're just still a long way behind. <laughs> and then, of course, the yeah. Ross and Rory, that was the kind of four-legged stool, as I understand it. You had top Ross, Rory and Michael. So instead of being a three-legged stool that Luca could control, it became a four-legged stool that they could control and shut him out if they wanted to make sure he couldn't tip it over um yeah i think barnard said it was louder that reached out to him so that that all makes sense now there was another interesting part of this interview which i think becomes fascinating with the benefit of hindsight that we have montezemolo was asked about timelines for turning ferrari around and he reckoned it would take two years to be competitive again which pretty much was right he also admitted uh, that fighting for championships was a different conversation entirely he was asked about the possibility of Ferrari attracting a star driver to lead this resurgence, and he was confident that it would be possible, saying Ferrari was lucky that the challenge of re-establishing it at the front of the F1 grid would appeal to some top drivers. He said the key for Ferrari was to find a driver who is motivated and prepared to work with us. I'm fascinated by this, David. Does this tell us that even back in 92... Montezemolo had in mind that he'd want to build the team around a driver. Even if he didn't know at this point it would be Michael Schumacher, he knew that that was going to be the blueprint. Get a superstar and then build the whole thing around him just a few years later. Yeah, I totally believe that. I mean, look what Nicky did. We talked about when Nicky went to Ferrari um, compared to later sort of things. But the thing to remember is that... 73 Ferrari in the second half when they revamped it actually wasn't that awful a car and it had a decent motor and when Vicky went in and said the front roll centre's wrong blah 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 and he pinpointed all that sort of stuff and that's what really set Luca on his path to success was having Nicky and him and Nicky working so closely together um, he understood then and also you had Harvey and I remember Harvey telling me and I still think this holds today but the one thing you want, or the one thing you can't underestimate, is how much a really good driver can contribute. And if you look at, in, in Harvey's case, we were talking about Wolf. He couldn't believe how good Jody was and what Jody brought to that. Because it's like having James at McLaren in 76. Like you said, Andrew, Alessi and Berger, if they, they certainly weren't number ones. Maybe they were one and a halves. Not quite twos, but they weren't the kind of guys that were going to lead you forward. Whereas a Nicky or 
in this particular instance, an atom would, yes, for sure, if you can get something, you could probably cut six months or more off the length of time it might otherwise take you. But if you look at how long it took Ferrari, even when Jean was there and then Michael went, they didn't start dominating immediately, did they? Took them a chunk of time before they really began to get into their groove. But having Michael eliminated a whole load of uncertainty, as would have had having Ayrton. Because you know that if the car is in quick in Ayrton's hands, it's got to be a dog. Yeah, it's a good way to remove that variable, isn't it? Yeah. Um... You know you've got the best. So that's one thing you don't have to worry about. You know, in that case, where you've got to focus. Talking to drivers, after the Portuguese Grand Prix, Capelli was ordered to go to Maranello, where on arrival he was shown a press release announcing that he was being fired before the end of the season. Capelli's main annoyance about this day that was he was summoned by Montezemolo's secretary and told it was for an urgent meeting with the president. But when he got there, he was intercepted before he got to Montezemolo and instead it was Postlethwaite who took care of business. Ferrari's public messaging was at least consistent with what it told Capelli in private, as Harvey said the main reason for the change was so that test driver Nicola Larini could race the active suspension system he'd been developing in testing. Capelli said on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast that he decided to leave without going to see Montezemolo after this meeting with Harvey, saying that he could accept Ferrari's decision, but he felt he deserved the respect of hearing it directly from the big boss. Andy, should Ferrari have treated Capelli with a bit more respect here? Yes. Uh, I've had the misfortune of having to fire a few people down years, and it's easy to pass it off to someone else to do it, um, but much better if you do it yourself. Um, you need to be able to look them in the eye uh, and give them the, that faith that you're doing it for the right reasons. And he was being fired for the right reasons. He hadn't been good enough. He was doing nothing to suggest that his performances were turning around. I think we'd said after that uh, knock in Canada, he'd lost confidence or whatever it was. Um, so he, he didn't deserve to stay, but he did deserve to be told that by the boss. And I think just a little bit of common courtesy in those situations can go a long way, especially if you're not doing it in some sort of underhand and um, slightly snidey way, just man up and do it. So, yeah, I think I think that was wrong. It's kind of in keeping with Ferrari, isn't it? Uh, yeah, sadly. I think for me, it's also the fact that being summoned by Mont- you're basically told you must come to Maranello immediately to see the president. Like the, they, the, the way they got him through the door was to say it's to see Montezemolo. And then you you have to see someone else. And by the sounds of it, they slid a piece of paper across the table. And that was the way of telling him. So, yeah, not... That's that's a shabby, shabby way of doing it. Yeah, not not Ferrari's classiest moment. Um, We will squeeze in a nicer Ferrari story from late in the year. While they were shattering Capelli's dreams, they also made the lovely gesture of letting Alessandro Nanini drive an F1 car again. And this was almost two years to the day since the helicopter accident that ended his F1 career. He did 38 laps uh, at Fiorano in the 92 Ferrari, uh, which is probably more of a punishment than a treat, uh, and was around four seconds slower than Alessi's lap record. Nanini spoke about that test years later in Motorsport magazine, saying it was difficult for Fiorano because the layout was so tight. And he said that when he drove a Benetton in 1996, that was a lot easier, helped by the car having more grip, plus a paddle shift and power steering. David, over the years, there was always talk that Nanini was, you know, might have been a future Ferrari driver. There were 
times that he'd supposedly signed contracts or letters of intent. Do you think we would have seen him race for Ferrari one day if his F1 career hadn't been interrupted? Ah, yeah, possibly. I think so, being Italian. I mean, the problem for Ferrari was they didn't really like having Italians, did they? It was harder when they had an Italian in the team with expectation and everything. But at the end of 89, he was kind of getting there, wasn't he? wasn't looking too shabby. Um, It's possible. I mean, it's just, this is one of those sad, what could have been stories, isn't it? If he'd stayed, if he hadn't had the accident, would he have been able to deal with Michael? Probably not. Almost certainly not. If he hadn't, if Nelson couldn't, then I don't think Sandro would have. But, you know, he knows. Yeah, I think if he had gone there, he'd have been going in in either 91, 92 or possibly even as late as 93. He's not exactly walking into a great seat there, is he? So it, it's it's a romantic gesture rather than a performance one. You know, he would definitely have been better off racing at Benetton across those years, but probably would have done the Ferrari deal. I think Nicola Marini must have been quite a brave guy to be doing all the active suspension work. Do you remember that time when um, it malfunctioned? Burger. <laughs> and Estoril. Roebuck and I were down at the first corner and we both went, oh my God. <laughs> Derek just sort of closed his eyes and hoped it wouldn't be there when he got there. It was very lucky. Yeah, because it would have got, would have got it broadsided. Yeah, that would, that would have been horrendous. Yeah, awful. Any driver had to be brave to test any active suspension systems. I know there were stories that in the early days at Williams, I think Mansell start, refused to drive it as well and was making the test drivers do all the work. Um, and yeah, there are stories as well, aren't there, of Larini's car sort of making its mind up on the grid about what sort of ride height it wanted to be at for taking off and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, with Nanini, there's also that concern, although being an Italian at Ferrari, perhaps it would have could have gone the way Capelli did if just the strain was too much. There's a great line I've seen in a few interviews from Capelli where he said he couldn't believe how uh, relaxed Eddie Irvine was when he was getting slated in the Italian press. And Eddie just said, well, I don't speak Italian and I don't read it and nobody tells you what they're saying, so I don't really care. <laughs> Swerve wouldn't care, would he? I was talking to somebody about him the other day and it was Spa, um, whatever year it was, but we were sat in the motorhome talking and he was sort of going, you've been writing, you know, what about me, blah, 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 blah. And then 10 minutes later, you realise you're still talking. Yeah. And that was what he was like. He'd tell you if he didn't like something, but then he'd still carry on. You know, we had like a 25-minute conversation because he he genuinely let most of it go over him like water off a duck's back and if you're talking about what might have been for Nanini here's one what would have happened if Johnny Herbert had gone to Benetton in 88 like he should have instead of having to wait till 89 he wouldn't have had the accident at Brands and you'd have seen Johnny at his best well he may well have been a Ferrari driver in 91 then (laughs) having dazzled in a Benetton this is an incredible rabbit hole. I love it when this happens on this show. <laughs> um, Ferrari ended the year uh, actually with a couple more points finishes for a Lacey, but all that did was make what was going to be a narrow gap over Lotus a bit less embarrassing. They got it up to eight points over Lotus, but they were 70 behind Benetton in third. By the end of 92, there were rumours that Miggio was on his way out of Ferrari, and that became official in early 93. When I spoke to Miggio last year, I asked him if the twin floor concept could have worked. And to this day, he's utterly convinced. So let's hear a little bit of what he said, including how Ferrari reacted 
when it first became clear that the 92 car wasn't very good. Do you think, if, if given time to develop, could that idea have worked? Yeah, I more than think so, but uh, okay. it's been an inspiration for a lot of development after that. Mm. But uh, all the, what they call now, undercut, or, you know, it's, it's exactly the same uh, ideas. You have to avoid that the, the flow on the side of the car goes under, and you're trying to show some other way, because the rear wheels are blocking the flow. And there's a lot of suction underneath, so the air will fill the gap. You don't want that because that takes your downforce out. So either you shape the bodywork, but we'll, the best solution was to open a channel uh, uh, blowing directly on the on the under tray on the diffuser at the back. So the concept was working. The problem: the car was terrible. Badly designed, the engine was terrible, and it was Ferrari. So the minute you're not winning the first race, you say, what's wrong? Mm -hmm. Ah, it must be the car. You, it's different. I spent the whole year to demonstrate it was not the double flow. We, we closed it, we did many things, it was slower, slower, slower. So we did the whole season with it, but um, then John Barnard came back. Next year, and the big fashion was uh, at the time the active suspension, which we didn't have time to develop and went on the car year after. It was not there anymore, but was not working properly. So it was the starting of a bad period for Ferrari. Barnard briefly mentioned the F92A in his book, very briefly I should add. Uh, he declared the car super sensitive to ride height, which he said would have been fine if Ferrari had active suspension. So I guess that's sort of in agreement with Migio, it's not completely a flawed concept. But Ferrari did away with the twin floor for 1993, producing a simpler car under the leadership of Postlethwaite that Barnard said was fairly straightforward and a stopgap that was aimed at fixing the multitude of problems for the F92A. So let's finish just reflecting on this car. And in fact, I've got a little model of it here on my desk. It's, it's a Capelli spec. Uh, I found that at a recent model show. I think. But as a lovely man, I would have had a, a Jean version of that if I were to buy one. <laughs> well, I didn't have a choice. It was a, a second-hand fare. I, I think the guy gave it to me for about four quid, so I couldn't say no. Yeah, I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> you can have this one for a fiver, so I make a profit. Andy, we'll ask you about the car first or the twin floor is there any part of you that's disappointed they didn't persist and see if this this could have been made to work there's a large part of me um obviously i'm not an aerodynamic uh, engineer but the i understand or at least the logic of what they're trying to do the fundamentals of managing the airflow to the back makes sense and that has fundamentally been the basis of formula one car design since New Year's, I mentioned earlier on, it's about feeding the air into the diffuser at the back there. And seemingly what that was designed to do was to do that. Now, obviously, there are a few other engineering compromises they never got right, especially with the suspension, ride height and all those sort of things. But as I think he says there, you look you look at the way car design has gone now, the way the, um, uh, the, the um, side pods are undercut, the way in which the air is sculpted around the car, there is clearly a logic there. Now... 
does that mean they could have made it work in 93? Almost certainly not, no. Especially <laughs> with the active suspension out, it would have been an equal disaster. It would have been a less boring disaster than the 93 car, though. And I think we lost out from that. So I wish they had persevered with it, but I wish they'd tried to develop a V10 and see how that had gone. Mm. David, uh, obviously we heard from Mizio there. Do you think there was more potential in the twin floor, perhaps if other parts of the F92A hadn't been so bad? Did, did, did the idea get scapegoated in a way? Uh, I think it did. I was just thinking then, um, when Andrew was talking, I'd like to have seen what would happen if it had been McLaren trying to develop that with Mijo. Mm. I think it would have gone a lot further than it did. And let's face it, Mijo was a smart cookie. He was nobody's fool when it came to air and the high nose and everything else. He was a very clever guy. I think he wasn't one of these um, slightly loopy um, guys that would come up with some crazy idea without... He wasn't a chancer. Eh? He wasn't a chancer, was he? He wasn't wasn't just throwing that out there. He was a smart cookie, and I think he was possibly onto something. It would have been interesting to see it get a better chance. I agree with Andrew putting it on the 93A or whatever they call it. I don't think that would have... If Ferrari had continued with it, I don't think it would have really gone anywhere but it would have been nice if um mclaren i presume other people must have looked at it in the wind tunnel i mean they do that all the time now don't they but um yeah it's one of those things it's funny if you try and look it up there's very little written about it in the technical books you know everyone talks about the high nose and everything else twin floor barely gets any mentions as if it's written off as a well that was a crazy idea Rather like the Auto Hebdo um, cartoon tried to suggest. But yeah, I think there was some common, certainly some common sense in it. And it would have been interesting. Anything like that that's new, I like. Because that's, you know, particularly now, you don't see that at all, do you? But back then, that was a fun thing to see. And wasn't it the 93 car that had the shark nose type in tapes on it? I still think they should have carried on with those sexy fighter playing in tapes. Oh, no, that was a 94 car. Yeah, they were great. Yeah, I think um, you're both right that it wouldn't have worked at Ferrari because obviously Barnard said he felt it could have worked with active suspension, but I bet it wouldn't have worked with Ferrari's active suspension in 93. <laughs> John to be... said that when he went back there, he thought um, Ferrari's aero department in general was some way behind Williams, McLaren and Benetton. So I think they had... It might have been that they just had quite a good idea but didn't really know what to do with it. And that that modified car that they had with the new floor and the transverse gearbox, etc., etc., that didn't really make much of a difference, did it? No, that's a good point. If you're 100 brake horsepower down, you're always going to be in trouble, aren't you? So, yes, scapegoating the floor, I think, of all the things in that car that was wrong, the engine was probably the biggest... Yeah, that makes sense. We'll leave it there for Ferrari's 19-2 season then. Not a classic, but certainly memorable and one that's been good fun to look back over. And I think we're all in agreement with much of our audience that it's a good-looking car. Uh, Just a shame it wasn't a bit quicker. Thanks to David for joining us again, and thanks to Andy. If you want to hear that interview with Migio in full, then check out the link to join the Race Members Club in the description of this episode. You'll be able to find it among all kinds of bonus content from Bring Back V10s and the race. Next time on the show, we're taking a big risk doing something we've never done before, something that may be considered a cardinal sin. That's all I'm going to say for now. Uh, You'll have to tune in next time to find out.
The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.